Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Um, jokes have been made about this light, which is, it's always something. There's always something, and it's, it's great. Uh, in all serious note, seriousness, though, uh, I appreciate things like this. Even, even though I do, in fact, have an iPad because I am a millennial and what's paper, um, I appreciate things like this. It's a... Honestly, there are so many people who do, do so many small things that might not end up on the podium being joked about on a Sunday morning. Uh, but lots of small things, lots of people who contribute in lots of ways to what happens here and as part of what makes this church so great. And uh, I, I really am genuinely thankful for people like Tom and many others who do these small, uh, mostly unnoticed things. As Joshua mentioned earlier, uh, we began a sermon series covering some Old Testament history entitled Royal Failures. And as the name suggests, from, uh, we, we are taking a couple of weeks to look at a handful of Israel's kings and their failures. Uh, naturally, we began last week with a look at Israel's first king, King Saul, and From that, we learned that looks can be deceiving. We learned that we can't ultimately rescue ourselves. And we learned that sin has a way of spiraling out of control. This morning, we are looking at the life of Absalom. Happy Valentine's Day with that one. (laughs) And you will likely hear echoes of those ideas from last week in my sermon today. But... Before we go any further this morning, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for so much. Thank you for your spirit and thank you for your word that come to us, that transform us, that bring us together, that form us into a church, that point us and reveal to us and help us understand Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel. It's because of him It's because of the spirit, it's because of the word that we gather here together this morning to seek you, to worship you, to find strength and hope and joy in you. Um, Help us this morning to be shaped by your word, speak through it, uh, speak through me, uh, that we would be sanctified by the holy and living word that's sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, Thank you for these people. Thank you for this church, for the people who call it home, for the people who show what you're like in their love for each other, show what they're like in their love for you, show what you are like in their love for you. Um, God, I, I ask that the sermon and what follows in this service and frankly, the life of this church would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Well, since 2008, Marvel Studios has released 23 movies totaling nearly 50 hours of runtime. These are comic book superhero movies portraying the likes of Iron Man, Captain America, and Spider-Man. Some of you may be surprised to find out that I've actually only seen two of them. I've really only seen two of these movies. I kind of couldn't believe it myself when I looked at the list. Uh, So if you're hoping to strike up a conversation with me about the inner workings of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
I am not your guy. Uh, But with movies like these, special effects are a must. There are explosions, there are intricate, intricate costumes, there's flying and jumping and fighting and falling. And many of these things take place on a stage, as we all know, surrounded with green screens or sometimes blue screens. There are harnesses and cables and rigs. The action is filmed and then computers and digital technology supplement what we see. So those foam pits, the pads, all those cables, they're removed. And obviously the green screens are replaced with scenes of extravagant skyscrapers or beautiful waterfalls or jungles or different kinds of landscapes. The goal is to make it look as real as possible. You, the viewer, don't see the cables and padding and rigs that make it all happen. Those things are taken out of the picture. In the movie, movies are at their best when you forget those things are there. We don't want to notice a cable floating as someone goes flying through the sky. Now this is the exact opposite of the Christian life. Obviously there are no green screens, there are no cables and harnesses and foam pits. But there is a God actively at work orchestrating everything and the trouble is that we don't have to work very hard to forget or ignore god it's easy to remove him from the picture and only see the action and instead we need to constantly remind ourselves that god is really there Special effects succeed when they take themselves out of the picture, when you don't realize what's happening. But we fail when we do the same to God. We fail when we forget that God is the harness that makes us fly or the padding that breaks our fall. In the words of Acts 17:28, he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We fail When we take that, when we take God out of the picture. And so this morning I have taken the somewhat long story of Absalom and condensed it into three major parts. The first is Absalom murders Amnon. The second is Absalom rebels against David. And third is Absalom dies. All three pieces of this story are marked across the board by The removal of God from the picture, forgetting that God is at work, forgetting that God is the one who makes things happen. The people are not concerned with God and unsurprisingly, evil comes as the result. And just so we're clear, this has been hinted at a little bit this morning, but I do intend to gloss over portions of this story. Frankly, there are kids in the room and there might be kids within earshot online. I'm not trying to uh, pretend that the ugliness isn't there. I'm not trying to make things seem less severe than they really are. I've said it before, I will say it again, that one of the things I appreciate the most about the Bible is its ugliness. Because the world can be a horribly ugly place. And the Bible, because of its honesty gives us ways to navigate that ugliness. That being said, in order for us to fully understand Absalom, we need to understand where he comes from. 
we need some backstory. And that backstory is provided in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you are going to find the story not of Absalom, but of David and Bathsheba. David sees a woman, takes her, gets her pregnant, then has her husband Uriah, who is fighting on David's behalf. He is on the battlefield fighting for David. David has this man sent on a suicide mission and killed. And with her husband dead, with Uriah dead, David claims Bathsheba as his wife. Now imagine David having conflicted feelings in all of this, but I, I don't think it's hard to imagine him feeling somewhat pleased with himself. Because he had successfully managed his scandal. He was able to cover it up before it could cause him any trouble. And nobody would find out the horrible thing David had done. And maybe, maybe that would have been true for David without God in the picture. But God is in the picture. He is still in the picture, even if we take him out. Second Samuel eleven twenty seven says, The thing David did had the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It literally reads, what it literally says is, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David thought his sin was a secret. He thought he wouldn't be found out. But he forgot that God paid attention. Now it's easy to criticize David. It's easy to point our fingers and think how foolish he was. But have you ever convinced yourself to cover up sin with more sin? And if you have, and I'm relatively confident that each and every one of us in this room this morning has done this at some point in our lives. If you have covered up sin with more sin, then the seed of David's sin is in your heart, just like it's in mine. We are all capable of forgetting God and piling, heaping sin on sin, trying to cover up our sin, fix our sin with more sin. As a result of this failure, God punishes David. Second Samuel twelve ten and 11 says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And then a little later in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So David's family will be full of violence. And violence against David will rise up from within his own family. So these lines are still hanging in the air as we get to the end of 2 Samuel 12 and we turn to 2 Samuel 13. And 2 Samuel 13 begins like this. Now Absalom, David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So we just were told that David's family will be full of violence. David's own family will rise against him. And oh, by the way, have you met David's family? Have you met his son Absalom, his daughter Tamar, his other son Amnon? And so when, we, when this happens in the Bible, we should see where it's going. David's sin has set the stage for what's going to follow. And so now we move into part one of Absalom's three-part story. And we know from the beginning that it's doomed. Absalom 
murders Amnon. So Amnon, David's firstborn son, has an unhealthy attraction to Tamar, his half-sister. 2 Samuel 13, verse 2, says that Amnon made himself ill because of her. Now, I know what you're thinking, or probably thinking. Of course he's ill. He's ill because he's got feelings for his sister. And that's gross, it's wrong, and yes, it is. But honestly, it's not clear whether or not incest is the issue here from the Bible's perspective. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 13, Tamar seems to suggest that they could be married if Amnon simply asked. But he doesn't. He doesn't ask. Instead, Amnon does what seems right to him. And to dance around the ugliness, he manipulates Tamar into a vulnerable spot and then overpowers and defiles her. He does what seems right to him. He takes God out of the picture. He does not consider at all what God is thinking, what God is seeing. And terrible evil was the result. But Amnon isn't the only failure here. David and Absalom both fail in their own rights. David, as king, had a duty to uphold justice. He had a duty to punish the wicked and protect the righteous. 2 Samuel 13, 21 says, When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. As he should be. He should be mad. But King David's anger didn't motivate him to do anything. Now, some scholars suggest that David was paralyzed by his own sin. That he couldn't imagine condemning Amnon for something he himself was guilty of. After all, he had done a very similar thing to Bathsheba. Personally, I think he was paralyzed by love for his son. But either way, David failed to fulfill his God-given duty. God had appointed David to rule with justice. But God, again, he was not in David's picture. And terrible evil was the result. Lastly, Absalom. Absalom is angered by David's lack of judgment. He's angered by David's lack of action. And so he takes justice into his own hands. Two years after the crime, two years of waiting and festering in his hatred of of Amnon, Absalom hosts a celebration. He hosts a party as a pretense for killing his brother. 2 Samuel 13, 28 says, Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. This this command from Absalom is very similar to commands given elsewhere by God himself. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31, 5 and 6 says, And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Even in 2 Samuel 
earlier in 2 Samuel in chapter 10, verse 12, similar language appears. It says, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. All these verses ought to sound similar to Absalom's command. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous. Be strong. Be valiant. But there is one humongous difference between these command, between Absalom's commands and the verses we just read. Joshua, Deuteronomy, Psalm, and 2 Samuel 10 are all appealing to God. The command comes from God. Courage comes from God. Hope is in God. Confidence is in God. What about Absalom's command? What comes from Absalom? Courage is from Absalom. Hope is in Absalom. Confidence is in Absalom. Absalom does not appeal to God's power and authority, but to his own. It's clear from this commandment that this is a man that has taken God out of the picture and put himself into God's place. The next verse, verse 29 says, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. So not only has Absalom lifted himself up to this position of authority, the people around him are doing the same. And in the process, they are piling sin upon sin. And so part one ends with Absalom on the run. He flees to his mother's father so his maternal grandfather's house in a nearby territory he leaves israel and he stays out in this other territory for three years three years he's gone when he does finally return to jerusalem he's not looking to patch things up he instead stirs up a rebellion and so we come to part two of absalom's story which is absalom rebelling against david Now, like I said, he spent three years outside of Israel. And Absalom is finally brought home through some political maneuvering by a man named Joab, who happens to be the commander of David's army. In 2 Samuel 14, Joab sends a woman to David with a made-up case that needs settled. She's got a made-up story and is asking for the king to make a declaration to make a ruling on it and in ruling the case david unknowingly proves that his own response to his son absalom has been wrong when it comes to dealing with a total stranger david's mind is clear and his judgment is sound when it comes to his own family everything is foggy i'm sure many of us can relate david showed partiality in his judgment, which is a clear violation of God's law and its scriptures teaching in places, ironically enough, like Leviticus 19, which Ben said he happened to be reading this week. Typically, when we show partiality to family, we are more generous. There's more leeway. But we also need to be careful not to make the mistake that David makes here. Right? David's partiality is not more generous, but it's more severe. He's more willing to forgive a total stranger than his very own son. And it's easy to understand why. Because the sin of that stranger was out there. But Absalom's son was, or Absalom's sin was personal. David had been personally devastated by Absalom's sin. But finding yourself in the crosshairs of someone's sin isn't a reason to withhold forgiveness. Sure, it makes forgiveness much more difficult. 
and complicated. But 2 Samuel 14, 14 says that God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. As in, God calls us and sets, up, sets us up to restore broken relationships, to forgive one another. Now, unfortunately for David, the damage has already been done. Two more years passed before David even requests to see Absalom. So, so Absalom is gone for three years, comes back to Jerusalem, lives in Jerusalem two full years without seeing his dad. Five total years later, they finally get together, but it's too late. Absalom's heart has been hardened, and he once again decides to take things into his own hands. Second Samuel 15, in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom begins to win favor among the people by judging cases on their behalf. He's going around saying, David's not listening to you, but I will. And hear how wise I am. Hear how just I am. I will take good care of you, even though David is not. And, and Absalom, in his defense, has reason to say this because it happened in his own life. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 7, he lies to his father. He lies to David about a promise he has made to God. He tells David that he's going to the city of Hebron to offer worship to the Lord. But what he's really doing is getting out from underneath his father so he can rally his troops and set his rebellion into motion. So just like his celebration years before was a cover to kill his brother, this worship is a cover to do another terrible thing. And King David and all those who were loyal to him are forced to flee from Jerusalem when Absalom succeeds. And at this point, things look very, very good for Absalom and very bad for David. But again, that's only if God isn't in the picture. Now, unfortunately, for the sake of time, uh, there are things in chapters 14, 15 and 16 that we just can't cover. There are things that remind us that King David isn't all bad. Things that remind us that David is capable of remembering God and keeping him in the picture. And through it all in these chapters, one thing does not change. David is the Lord's anointed. David is God's man. If that word anointed, the idea of it's not clear for you. And if I say anointed, just here appointed, right? So David has been chosen by God to be king. And Absalom, Absalom has made the terrible mistake of setting himself against the Lord's anointed one. The seriousness of this can be seen in some of David's earlier actions. David had to run for his life, literally ran for his life from King Saul. And on multiple occasions, David could have killed him. David could have killed King Saul and nobody would have blamed him. He could have chalked it up entirely to self-defense. But David refused to kill Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. Later on, when Saul has actually been killed, a man comes to David from the battlefield and claims to have killed Saul. This guy assumes he's going to be a hero for, for killing David's mortal enemy. But instead, David has the man executed for daring to kill the Lord's anointed. So Absalom has taken God out of the picture. And because he's taken God out of the picture, he's feeling pretty good about his plans. But had he remembered God's role, he would have surely realized the total and utter foolishness of opposing the Lord's anointed. 
Which leads us into part three of Absalom's story. Absalom dies. Now Absalom doesn't die all at once. (laughs) He returns to the royal city of Jerusalem to take David's place. And while he's there, he makes himself... He makes himself a stench to his father. This is how the Bible talks about it. He makes himself a stench to his father. Uh, If you want to see how he did that, you can look for yourself. Uh, In doing this, he is further fulfilling God's curses upon David. Again, you can check that out or you can ask me about it later. But he does so following the advice of this man named Ahithophel, which I think is a wonderful name. Ahithophel just rolls off the tongue. Ahithophel had once served on David's court. And there is a... Pretty interesting theory on why this man, Ahithophel, turned on David. But regardless of his motivations, he was very highly thought of. 2 Samuel 16, 23 says this. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. But when Ahithophel advises Absalom to attack David, Absalom doesn't listen. They've got David on his heels and Ahithophel saying, go, go, go. But David, or but Absalom does something else. He listens instead to a man named Hushai. Hushai recommends that they wait and gather their strength before they attack. But Hushai was a spy. He was a man still loyal to David. And 2 Samuel 17, 14 tells us this about these decisions. It says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. I don't want you to... Uh, miss the irony here. God hasn't simply foiled Absalom's plans by throwing a thunderbolt from the sky. Absalom seals his own fate by denying the good path that God puts in front of him. Again, remember, Ahithophel's counsel was considered as the very word of God. Yet when Absalom gets his advice, he rejects it. Absalom's choice reveals how far removed he is, or how far removed God is from his mind. It's so far that he can't even recognize good military strategy, this wisdom from this man, when he hears it. Again, it's it's from the mouth of one, of a person, known to speak the very words of God, and yet Absalom doesn't listen. This is ultimately his undoing. Had Absalom listened to Ahithophel, they would have overtaken David and David's men. But instead, his stubbornness and blindness are used by God to cement his defeat. And so as Absalom waits to gather strength, David and his men reorganize and they rest from their scattered running and fleeing. And David's mighty warriors attack Absalom's men and they defeat them. And Absalom... Despite David's command to deal gently with him, is caught and killed in a, frankly, very memorable way that I don't have time to get into this morning. Um, Now, surely there is much to the story of Absalom. There is much more than could be covered in one sermon. We could spend several weeks considering these couple of chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, But this, frankly, is true of any you're ever going to hear. 
No pastor can cover everything that a passage says in a single sermon. The sermon might be done in roughly 30 minutes, but the living word of God is not. Now, while there is certainly more that could be learned from Absalom, I am certain that there is not less. Absalom was a man who piled sin on sin. He tried to fix sin with sin. He was a man who had removed God from the picture. And as a result, his life was filled with foolish choices that led to evil, suffering, and eventually his own death. As we've seen, this rejection of God was not unique to Absalom. Even David suffered from bouts of forgetfulness. As a matter of fact, forgetting God, denying God, is a major theme of First and Second Samuel. If you remember, the reason the Israelites had a king at all was because they were dissatisfied with God. They wanted a king to build an army that would protect them. They wanted a king to sit at court and decide their cases justly. Implicit in this is the fact that the people did not trust God. They did not trust God to protect them. They did not trust God to punish the wicked and protect the upright. That's why they wanted a king. They wanted a king to do for them what they thought God could not do. Now, how different would Absalom's life have been if he had trusted in God to punish the wicked? He wouldn't have taken justice into his own hands and killed and killed Amnon. And in the life of David, in some of these chapters that are some of these verses and passages we didn't look at this morning, we see this play out. We see how David does trust in God to punish the wicked. How different would Absalom's life have been if he had trusted God to protect his people? Well, he wouldn't certainly would not have aligned himself against King David. The obvious takeaway for us this morning is to keep God in the picture. To remember that in him we live and move and have our being. Like the cables and harnesses and pads on a movie set allow these amazing scenes to happen. God is the one who makes things happen. And when we fail to remember that, we will likely find ourselves in trouble. But perhaps even more important this morning, and I'm convinced it is more important this morning, is not just for me to tell you to keep God in the picture. But it's for us to recognize what our God is like. Now, this goes hand in hand with keeping God in the picture, because in order to do that, we have to know what we're looking at. We have to know what we're looking for. And this story about Absalom, while it shows us what happens when we ignore God, it also shows us exactly what God is like. Now, what I'm about to say isn't groundbreaking, but Second Samuel comes after First Samuel. They're connected. These are two volumes of the same story. And so what we find in 1 Samuel is relevant to what we will find in 2 Samuel. And the reason I'm saying this is because near the beginning of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have a prayer of praise from a woman named Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, which is the prophet for whom these books are named. And we're going to read this prayer this morning, and I want you, as we read it, to think about how it might connect to the story of Absalom and what God has done that we've listened to. 
So beginning in 1 Samuel 1, or 2, verse 1, it says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When we look at the life of Absalom, yes, we must see that we need to keep God in the picture. But this is not some random God. This is a God who punishes the wicked and guards the faithful. Who knows our deeds and weighs them. Who says that strength is not the same as power. It's a God who delivers his people. So yes, yes, it is important that we keep God in the picture. And yes, it can feel like a burden. It can be work to constantly focus our mind on God when so many things are pulling us away. So many things are trying to suggest to us that he isn't there. But keeping God in the picture and doing that work is worth it. It is a joy for us when we begin to realize and understand who our God is, what he's done, and what he can continue to do for us. And all of these things become even better, even clearer in Jesus Christ. That God is our salvation. We don't need to rescue ourselves We don't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God will provide for us. God will protect us. We don't need to be strong because God is our strength. That we don't need to be rich because God will give us bread. We don't need to find greatness here in this life because he has already given us seats of honor. All of this is true in Jesus. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our perfect obedience. He is our death and our life. We don't need vengeance because we trust that Jesus will one day make everything right. That the sufferings of this present age are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Imagine a superhero movie with no special effects. Imagine the actors are trying to come up with solutions for the flying, for the explosions, for the costumes they need to pull this thing off. It would go poorly, to say the least. And it would be unbelievably stressful and entirely unrealistic to expect those actors to come up with a movie resembling anything like the movies produced by Marvel Studios over the past decade. But that's what we do when we take God out of the picture. When we remove God 
we are left looking for our own solutions. Solutions that we will never find. Jesus is the harness that makes us fly. And he is the padding that breaks our fall. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how it meets us in the ugliness, the grittiness of the world. Um, that it speaks into that. That it is not all roses and rainbows and, and happy times, God. But that we can look to your word and find hope, find meaning, find purpose, find justice in the midst of ugliness. And those things aren't just floating out there waiting to, be ha- waiting to happen. Those things are rooted and grounded in you. Because of who you are. Because of what you do. Because of your love and the holiness of your character. We can wait on you, God. We can wait on you to save us. We can wait on you to provide for us. We can wait on you to be just. Help us to better see who you are. To be, uh, as, we, as we grow in our vision of you, God, that our hearts would grow larger as well, that we would grow in our love for you. The better we come to know you, the more we come to understand you. And as a result, we love our neighbors better and bring you more honor and glory here and now in this life. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen.